0: In today's media environment, there's often a lot of unanswered questions. Because narratives are so powerful and because media is so polarized, there are often pieces of information that don't quite fit with any given story. One fact I've been wondering about for a long time is how Trump managed to increase his support among Black voters in the 2020 election, and particularly Black men. What happened here? And why didn't we hear more about this? My guest on the podcast today has one possible answer.
1: Trump comes into office and Black unemployment falls to record lows. Black poverty rates fall to record lows. And Black wages are rising at faster rates than white wages during the first three years of the Trump presidency prior to the pandemic.
0: Jason L. Riley is a conservative commentator in the U.S. He's a columnist for the Wall Street Journal and a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. His latest book is The Black Boom. Jason L. Riley joins me today to make the case that the lives of working class black people improved under Donald Trump. Jason L. Riley is my guest today on Lean Out. Jason, welcome to Lean Out.
1: Thank you for having me. It's
0: really great to have you on. I was introduced to your work by my colleague, Jamil Giovanni, whose show you were on and have been following your work ever since. So I'm really happy to have you on the program today. This book, as I said before, really made me think a lot. And let's just get a few things out of the way to start. You didn't vote for Trump in 2016 or 2020. You have criticized him strongly. In fact, this book does not defend his personality or, as you say, his Twitter feed. So what made you decide to write this book, giving him credit for his economic policies and exploring their impact on Black Americans.
1: Well, I thought it was an underreported story. I thought that the, the coverage of the Trump administration was journalistic malpractice in many cases. Journalists uh, suspended their their norms, their standards, their objectivity to cover the Trump White House and were pretty much in resistance mode from day one. They had decided that Trump was a was a bigot and someone whose policies were going to harm the economic prospects of of low-income minorities in America. And when that didn't happen, they simply refused to admit that they were wrong. And so I thought that this was a a story that needed to be told, not so much to score partisan points, but because we all care about economic inequality. We all care about racial inequality. And if certain policies help narrow those gaps, we should be talking about those policies, regardless of who's president. So I thought there was a very substantive reason to tell the story that the press had largely ignored.
0: And I do want to return to media later, because I think it's such an important thing to talk about. I'm also pretty concerned about the state of our media. But for now, set this up for us. Give us a snapshot of your key arguments in this book. How exactly did life improve for Black people under Trump?
1: Well, it might help to start, with what was going on in Black America prior to, to Donald Trump becoming president. People forget how bad Blacks had it economically under President Obama. He was personally liked, still is, by a large majority of Americans. But his economic policies did not redound to the benefit of Black Americans in any significant degree. And just to give you some data to back that up, it wasn't until the seventh year of the Obama presidency that black unemployment fell below double digits. So Trump comes into office and black unemployment falls to record lows. Black poverty rates fall to record lows and black wages are rising at faster rates than white wages during the first three years of the Trump presidency prior to the pandemic. So there was a stark, stark difference in the economic prospects of blacks under Trump versus under President Obama.
0: I found a lot of the data in the book just astonishing. One of the th- metrics that really stood out to me was this average of 400,000 new black wage earners per year during Trump's presidency. Can you elaborate a bit on that fact?
1: Sure. You know, I call the book The Black Boom, but it it could also have been called The Working Class Boom because that's what I'm really talking about. The degree to which the working class in America benefited from the economic growth we saw under Donald Trump. It just so happens that Blacks and to some extent Hispanics are overrepresented among the working class. So the benefits were redounded to, to them especially. But it was really the lower wage workers that saw the greatest gains. Their, their wages were rising at faster rates than their bosses than, than management. And I think that had a lot to do with the tax cuts that Trump put in place. The most significant tax reform In some four decades, we saw under Trump and cutting not only personal income taxes, but I think perhaps even more importantly, the corporate tax rate. It was one of the highest in the Western world. And what that meant is that a lot of American companies, multinationals, had a lot of money parked overseas. And when the tax reform passed and they were allowed to bring that money back to America called repatriating it, they did. And and that worked to the benefit of their workers. They vested here in America. Their companies grew in size. They needed to hire more workers. And this was particularly true in the manufacturing field. And again, that benefited mostly the working class here in America, where Blacks are overrepresented. He also focused on deregulating the business sector. And again, businesses responded as you would expect by investing growing their domestic operations and and hiring more people and offering better wages and more competitive wages. So I think that had a lot to do with the economic gains that we saw.
0: Mm. So you, you focused on corporate tax cuts and deregulation. One thing I don't understand. I mean, those are both free market policies. I don't understand wh- where the impact of Trump's trade policy here, which was protectionist, right? So is it possible to look at the gains that you cite in the book and think that it could be attributed to trade and the move to sort of reindustrialize America?
1: I was not a fan of his trade policies. And I think that I'd probably argue that we would have seen even more robust growth under Trump during those first three years, but for those trade policies. In fact, I'd go so far to argue that time might have been running out on the Trump boom I I described in the book, because I think that those trade policies eventually were going to come back to haunt us, to bite us. Picking trade fights with European Union countries, Canada, Mexico, and so forth, I I don't think that was sustainable and, and ultimately would have harmed the economic growth we were seeing. Even with China, I don't think that they were helpful. So that's not something I would look to as having benefited, America under Trump. I sort of group those trade policies with those immigration policies, which I also
0: mm-hmm. argue
1: and go into some detail in the book about how I don't think those are particularly helpful.
0: Mm-hmm. And I want to come back to immigration. And another thing I was wondering about, and these are what I'm putting to you kind of staunchly liberal assumptions. So another question I had was the period from the 40s to the 70s that you talk about unprecedented growth for black incomes because the economy as a whole was growing. This is post New Deal. Why not conclude that we need a new New Deal as like political scientists like Robert Putnam, who you cited, have concluded?
1: Well, I guess I would take issue with the with the presumption that the growth we saw was due to the New Deal. I think that was due to the run up to World War Two, which ended the New Deal. (laughs) I mean, that was um, (laughs) so, and I wouldn't propose we start another war to get economic growth again. But yes, I I don't attribute the growth that we saw to the the New Deal. And in fact, you know, that growth is something that we've seen in the wake of other tax cuts in this country, which is why I, I think that's something I would point to. In other words, when Kennedy cut taxes in the 60s, we saw growth. When Reagan cut them in the 80s, we saw growth. When George W. Bush cut them in the 2000s, we saw growth. So the growth we saw under Trump is is not unprecedented. It's what has happened when other presidents, Democrats and Republicans, have reduced taxes and incentivized companies to hire and invest. And people give more people more money to spend the way they see fit. And the argument here is that economic growth is more important to the economic prospects of low-income minorities than wealth redistribution, which is what we saw under President Obama. And and I think that is why we saw the outcomes we did among those minority groups under President Obama, because the economy was not growing. and, And it's that growth, I think, that is the real key to narrowing these economic disparities. Because in those periods, those prior periods that we saw the economic growth, we also saw income inequality narrowing. So the two, I think, go hand
0: in hand. Mm-hmm. What about the issue of unionization? Because the '40s to the '70s was much more heavily unionized than we are now.
1: Well, you know, there's a there's a long history of, frankly, bigotry among union organizers and excluding black workers. I would not argue that unionization has worked to the benefit of blacks historically. Um, unions, in some cases, were formed to exclude blacks from the workforce, and 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 we still have a legacy. Of that today, you know, minimum wage laws were pushed by unions, particularly in the North, to keep blacks out of the labor force, keep them from competing for jobs with white workers, and whites, you know, have been pretty upfront and honest about this. If you go back to the debates in the 1920s and 30s between labor and politicians over putting minimum wage laws in place, so you know, I, I think that I, I would not cite unions or unionization as a, uh, a boon for the black underclass historically in America.
0: And you also write about the minimum wage hikes across the country during Trump and you handle that as well in the book. Mm-hmm. What's your response to those who might say, well look, we're seeing minimum wages go up, of course that's going to have a gain.
1: Well, you have a a couple problems with that. The first problem is a is a I guess I'd call it a quantitative problem. Only about 2 or 3% of workers in the US earn the minimum wage. The federal minimum wage now, states can have their own minimum wage and it can be higher than the federal minimum wage. But even there, that only gets you about six or seven percent of the workforce. So there just aren't enough of these workers out there earning the minimum to be responsible for the trends that we saw. They they can't be driving these trends. There aren't enough of them. The other problem you have is that a, a minimum wage hike is a one off. In other words, if Florida or Texas or Wisconsin says on January 1st of you know 2018, we're going to lift our minimum wage, you would expect to see wages go up in January of that year. You would not expect them to go up in February and then in March and then in April and so forth. Mm. But that is what we saw under Trump. And again, that's why I can't look to the to the to the minimum wage hikes as a satisfactory explanation of what we were seeing. The other thing is that minimum wages involve trade-offs. In other words, if you're making the minimum and the minimum wage goes up, you will see an increase in pay, provided you keep your job and provided you continue to work the same number of hours you were working before. Neither one of those things can be assumed. Mm -hmm. And the studies that I cite in the book, such as the case of what happened out in Seattle, when they lifted their minimum is that in fact, workers' wage earners received fewer hours of work. And at the end of the day, because their hours had been reduced, even after the wage went up, they were ultimately earning less money. So we have to keep in mind that there are trade offs here with regard to the minimum wage as well. Mm-hmm.
0: So one of the other really fascinating things about this book is that you include not one, but two dissenting points of view, uh, one liberal, one conservative. So let's talk about Juan Williams first. This is a quote from him. If Trump's tax cuts and scaling back business regulation greatly improved economic outcomes for minority groups, how is it that most of the improvement took place under President Obama? Your thoughts?
1: Well, yeah, I, I think Juan is sort of making a heads I win tails-you-lose argument. He's saying, essentially, that all of these gains that we saw under Trump would have happened anyway, no matter who became president next, that the Obama administration sort of greased the skids here, and it really didn't matter who followed them. What we saw happen would have happened regardless. And that's that's rewriting history somewhat. If you go back, as I do in the book, and look at the expectations at the time that Trump was taking off this, that is not what people were saying. To give you an example, in the second to last year of the Obama presidency, 2015, the economic growth rate in America was 3.1%. During Obama's final year, 2016, it fell to 1.5%, almost in half. And people like Larry Summers, a prominent economist, in, in in the. US who was Bill Clinton's Treasury secretary he said there's a high likelihood that we are going to go into a recession soon the Federal Reserve said that the economy could not grow any faster that unemployment cannot go any 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 lower the Congressional Budget Office was saying the same thing these are what people were saying at the time when Trump took over he was inheriting a slowing economy a rapidly slowing economy economy that had that had fallen in its rate of growth by 50% in the previous 12 months. That is the economy that Trump inherited. And again, we saw record unemployment, a record low unemployment rates, record low poverty rates for minorities and so forth. In fact, for the lowest earners in America, their, their wages rose at double the rate in the first three years under Trump than they had in Obama's second term. So it was not just a continuation. Of what was going on under Obama. This was an acceleration of what was going on. And I I don't think people like Juan Williams, who I think represents a pretty broad liberal view on this, Mm -hmm. uh, can have it both ways.
0: Mm -hmm. Your second rebuttal from Wilfred Riley, coming back to immigration now, takes issue with what he refers to as a quote-unquote bad take on immigration, particularly your conclusion that Trump was too harsh on this issue. Walk me through your response.
1: Well, again, I, I, I handle immigration in this book with respect to its impact on, on Black economic prospects. And, and I conclude that immigration does not have a great deal of impact, positive or negative, on Black economic prospects in this country. And again, as I was saying with the minimum wage law, you have a quantitative problem. In other words, there are about 47, 48 million Black people in America. Even if Trump had reduced illegal immigration or overall immigration by a few hundred thousand, there just weren't enough of them to be having an impact on the trends that we saw among blacks as a whole in this country. So, so that's that's the first problem. And then there's the actual record of Donald Trump vis-a-vis immigration. So in America, the Department of Homeland Security uses the number of apprehensions at the border as a proxy for illegal immigration. When apprehensions are up it means that more illegal immigrants are entering the country. When they're down, it means fewer are. During Trump's first year in office, 2017, they were down. But in the next two years, they more than doubled and before falling again in the wake of COVID. So at the end of the day, Trump did not reduce the size of the illegal population appreciably in America. It continued to grow at a a slower rate, but it continued to grow nonetheless. This is not to say that we shouldn't do anything about illegal immigration. I'm not arguing that we should. We we need a more secure border. We need to stop people from abusing our asylum laws and so forth. And it's a very outdated system. I mean, it was a system put in place for the 1800s and early 1900s, and and it you know we're in the 21st century now, and it needs to be modernized. Uh, we should we should work on that. But again, with respect to how immigrants impact black economic prospects in this country, I, I would not. I I would not conclude that they have a huge impact, nor historically have they had a huge impact. Between 1900 and 1930, which was something of a heyday of immigration in America, the immigration population grew by almost 40% between 1900 and 1930. During that same period, Black employment rates in this country were higher than white employment rates. So again, this is not a new phenomenon, this, this experience of Black job prospects not being dependent on keeping immigrants out of the country. Historically, it hasn't been necessary either. But I think the the takeaway from the data that I just gave you is that however many millions of illegal immigrants you believe are in this country or legal immigrants are in this country, all of the economic gains that I described among blacks under the first three years of the Trump presidency occurred with them here. (laughs) <laughs> there was no mass deportation. <laughs> so, so the idea that they need to be gone, another, another word in, for, for blacks to have some upward mobility, I think has just been proven false. All mm. of those gains occurred, the record low unemployment, the record low poverty, the high wage gains and so forth. All of that occurred with this huge number, this huge immigrant population in the US.
0: Mm. So interesting. And, and Jason, you mentioned COVID. I mean, what has happened to the Black American working class during the pandemic?
1: Well, it's been hit very hard. It's been hit very hard for a number of reasons. I mean, you have a lot of vaccine skepticism among the Black population, particularly lower educated Blacks. You, you have these health issues, underlying health issues that the virus exacerbates among Black population. And then you have the, the types of jobs that Blacks typically work in, service sector, hospitality. Economically, those were the first jobs to shut down, and you can't do those jobs from home. And so there was a, a hit that the Black community took there in, in working or being employed in sectors of the economy that shut down immediately when COVID struck. So they, they, were, they were hit very hard. But, I, you know, I, I do think that one reason that, that Trump increased his performance among minorities In his re-election bid, you know, even though he he lost the election, his numbers among both Blacks and Hispanics went up, particularly among the men in both of those groups. And I think Mm -hmm. one reason they did is because of his emphasis on reopening the economy. And again, these are people working jobs you couldn't do from home. And I think Trump's emphasis on getting the economy up and going again helped him with those groups at the polls in 2020, even if it was in in a losing bid, ultimately.
0: And Jason, let's come back now to the media and to your critique of the media at the beginning of the book. You mentioned that Trump had made gains with Blacks and Hispanics in 2020. This fact was largely ignored. You know, your critique of the media under Trump is a really big point of common ground for you. And I, I really agree with it. So you point to this turning point in American media, the piece from Jim Ruttenberg at the New York Times. Walk me how you think that changed things for our business.
1: Well, the Republican administrations have been accustomed to hostile press coverage. That in and of itself is nothing new. There have been polls going back decades that, that show, you know, most White House correspondents, most journalists who cover politics in Washington lean left, 80, 80, 80% plus vote Democrat. Uh, now you can argue that that doesn't in- impact their, their coverage one whit, but, you know, that's probably debatable, at least. I mean, to no one really believes that. So because the mainstream media does lean left, Republican administrations, conservative administrations have gotten accustomed to that. I think what you get at with the Ruttenberg and with the New York Times in general, and not just the New York Times, the Washington Post, NPR, ABC, NBC, CNN, and so forth, is they pretty much came out and explicitly said, we are going to cover Donald Trump differently. The old journalistic norms no longer apply. We are going to resist this presidency. We are going to take this presidency down. That is our new job. And you saw, you saw these press conferences where these journalists would get up and not just ask questions. They would berate the administration official standing behind the podium, whether it was Trump or, or the White House spokesman or, or whomever. It was, it was quite something to behold. And I just don't think that the journalism industry has done itself any favors going forward. You know, we didn't have the highest amount of trust from our readers and viewers and and and, and listeners to begin with. But I really think we hurt our cause by taking that approach to the Trump administration. You, you can't switch this off like a like a light and say, oh, Biden's in, in office now. So now we'll go back to, to covering administrations objectively again.
0: It doesn't work that way.
1: Mm. I, I, I think that the media has really dug itself in a hole. And it could take some time to get out if if they ever get out.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's a it's a it's really dicey time and we have lost public trust. You know, the media is so polarized, but the public is also so polarized, too. And that's part of why i loved this project is it is bringing together people across partisan lines to talk about these really important issues in this totally new way that I haven't seen anywhere else. I haven't seen this argument that you've made anywhere else. So just lastly, to close, how do we keep coming together across partisan lines to learn from each other's ideas?
1: Well, I think one problem we have is, is the rise of social media. And I mean that in that it's problematic in the sense that we lack a common sources of information the way we used to. You know, I grew up at a time in America when most people in this country got their their news from, you know, three news anchors, you know, Tom Brokaw, Peter Jennings, and Dan Rather. And so after we got the news from them, and then we went off to debate the news, we were all talking about the same thing because we were all listening to the same sources. Social media enables you to lock in a news feed that can just reinforce your own prejudices on Twitter or on Facebook or where have you. And so once you get your news from that source, and then you go off and talk to other people, you can largely be talking past one another because you don't share the same the same source of news. I mean, I often, the way I put it is it's, it's not that the problem isn't that people watch Fox or MSNBC. It's the problem is when you only watch Fox mm. or only watch MSNBC. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's sort of the bind we're, we're, we're in right now. And, and and so I think to get out of it, I encourage people to get their news from a variety of sources, even from sources where you largely disagree with the take that you're getting. It really helps to understand where someone else is coming from so that you're not talking past one another. The easiest way for this to happen would be if news sources Provided a v- variety of points of view, but right <laughs> yes. now we 're in a point where you need to you need to change the channel to get here another opinion mm-hmm. i mean you, you shouldn't have to do that. <laughs> Yeah. So, so I, you know, I think that that would help. That would go a long way toward dialing things down in, in terms of the hyper partisanship that we see in the country right now is if people sought out different points of view and, and factored that in to, to forming their own their own point of view. And it's really hard to do that, given the social media out there. I'm not I'm not advocating that we go back to having three guys give us our news. I think there's a whole other upside to social media that that. Clearly, for me, outweighs the downside. But I think that that one byproduct of social media is is this ability to just sort of isolate yourself uh, ideologically.
0: Indeed, indeed. Well, listen, I found this book deeply, deeply thought provoking. I think I'm going to be thinking about it for uh, many days to come. And I just really appreciate you coming on to talk about it with me. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.